when folks see the growth of that category, like any strong asset manager would look at that growth and see that as an opportunity for uh, themselves and their clients to get access to, to what they do. Also, you start to find that as uh, folks have, have taken the benefits that BDC's offered and allocated it to their investment portfolios. That's clearly been a major driver. And then a number of large state pensions, sovereign wealth funds, a number of folks have found that the BDC, through several uh, tax advantages, etc., are a great place to invest, provided it's done with the right manager. All of that really comes about, right, this institutionalization, right, from moving from the Wild West right, to a much more, we'll call it a proper and structured industry, right? Because early on, when it's only a few players, you might have levels of um, misalignment between the manager and the investor. Clearly today, as more capital flows in, very sophisticated capital and very sophisticated managers, you start to find that what happened in the past doesn't really work for the present. And that's great for investors and they continue to invest more and more capital. That was Jonathan Bach, CFO of Bearings BDC. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number five of season five. All season long, we're bringing you the latest on the factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to be the first to know about our latest episodes, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. You can find us by searching Streaming Income. My guest today is Jonathan Bach. John's been on the show a few times before, and I'm always excited when I get a chance to speak with him. From his seat as a managing director within Bearings Global Private Finance Group and CFO of Bearings BDC, John has a phenomenal perspective on all things private credit, specifically the nuances of the BDC market, which was the subject of our conversation today. So in the discussion, we got a chance to dive into the role that BDCs are playing in investors' portfolios today, how that's changed over time, uh, and the pros and cons of the different types of BDCs that are on offer today. We also talked about how the asset class itself is growing or institutionalizing and what that means for investors in the form of lower fees and generally more attractive terms. Finally, we talked about the biggest risks facing BDCs and also why this space has been such a hotspot recently for M&A. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Bach. All right, John Bach, welcome back to Streaming Income. It is great to see you in person. It's been too long. It's amazing. Uh, in fact, this is the uh, first podcast that we are recording in person okay. in uh, something like a year and a half. Uh, and believe it or not, the last podcast that we recorded in person was in this room. And guess who the guest was in that podcast? I'm going to go with uh, 
somebody from private credit. It was you, in it, fact. There we go. It was you. There we so go. Nice, nice bookends on this. Uh, had a little bit <laughs> we of di- started the pandemic, and now we're going to finish That's it. That's right. Um, had a little bit of bookends kind of coming into this, <laughs> and a little bit of uh, deja vu coming into this conversation. So I'm really, I'm, I'm, in all honesty, it's, it is really great to do this in person. It and is to see you in person. It so. is, and a lot happened in almost now a year and a half. Right. It's been, it's been a quite a time. We're going to talk about that, um, especially, uh, especially in the BDC space. So you know, it's been an incredibly busy time in that space. As you know, you've been yeah. incredibly busy. Yeah. Um, there's been lots going on, lots of M&A going on yeah. that you and the Bearings team have been involved in. So I want to get to all of that. Yeah. Um, but maybe let's just start uh, as a quick reminder to folks uh, at, a, at a little bit of a more basic level and just talk about BDCs in a, as an asset class. Sure. Uh, and maybe you can kind of help us set the stage and, and just remind us, hey, you know, what is the big attraction here of, of BDCs? Um, how are people using it as a portfolio allocation these days? And maybe if that has changed over time, um, how has it done so? Sure. So you're familiar, BDCs are essentially yield vehicles, right? They're publicly traded stocks, right? But what they do is they make loans to medium-sized businesses and they take that interest income and pass it on to investors in the form of a 1099 uh, dividend. So they're great income uh, generators. And you find that if you're very good at lending, you can earn attractive risk-adjusted returns. And so you get uh, some when a, a stock that maintains its value, uh, but an attractive dividend yield to boot, let's say between 8 and 10%. Just going to use that as a class. So uh, in an environment where rates are pretty low, right, particularly post-pandemic, lots of folks look for income replacements in their portfolio. So you start to find that individuals looking at their 60-40 or looking at their bond allocation, recognizing that returns anemic, these are great additions. And more importantly, they're great diversifiers, right? So that's one trend as it relates to income. Second really comes from the fact that this uh, growth of the middle market, the middle market's vast. It's the th- of the United States. It's the third largest economy, creates millions and millions of jobs. And so the underlying resilience of the economy is really present in, in the loans that we and our other peers make. Right. You're actually buying into something real, tangible, m- very meaningful part of the economy. Correct. And then you also have a point where the loans that we make are floating rate. So you have an inflation hedge to the extent that for some reason rates rise Mm -hmm. due to fear. Mm -hmm. You're going to see a level of increased return off of BDCs, in particular ours, right, as you would relative to anybody else that would be lending on a fixed basis. So there is a floating rate uh, element here that's really, uh, really attractive. Well, well, that's particularly timely. As as we sit here today, I think if we went back and looked at the Bloomberg screens right now, I think every other headline would be about inflation at the moment. Yeah, that's right. So you have folks that look forward, they recognize this can be a great income producer today, great diversifier, great inflation hedge. And there's one more trend that I think folks normally look at and say, um, this makes sense. And that gets into manufacturing and distribution, right? So when we make a loan, we are effectively manufacturing that loan. We have our own originators, our own structurers. We work very closely with all the parties involved, the company or the equity owner, uh, to create that risk return. Contrast that to the distribution model. Uh, some XYZ fund is buying a, a high-yield bond or a liquid loan off the, the desk of uh, a large uh, multinational bank. That's a distribution model. What you start to find is there's more embedded value in manufacturing 
than there is in distribution. And so folks want people that actively create the risk return as opposed to simply buying it. So you start to find that that is another major tailwind as folks want active underlying structuring management uh, and support as opposed to what could come uh, simply by buying off a list of securities. Yep, yep, that makes sense. And I'm, and I'm sure that's a big part of, you know, why we've seen so much capital flowing into not only BDCs, but private credit, you know, it's a more lot. broadly. That's, ex- that's exactly right. So like, there's value when you're the one creating the risk return, not simply buying it. Yep, yep. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you. I think that's a great way to start to kind of just get that reminder overview of kind of what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about some of the more recent developments. I mean, it's my impression, uh, and I'm interested if it's yours as well, but it's my impression that the uh, asset class, for lack of a better word, is is kind of growing up. It's been um, a long time. I mean, it has grown up when you and I were in equities, and I mean, we're, right. we're very familiar. These were, this was often a, a smaller, some would say a cottage-style uh, mm-hmm. industry now, you know, back when you and I, I won't care to admit how long ago that was, but a while ago, um, you know, you'd see maybe sizes of twenty billion in terms of equity capitalization. Mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. it's in excess of one hundred and sixty, mm. uh, with many names, uh, large institutional brand names right. that are all participating in this space. So yeah, it's grown up a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it's becoming more institutional. What what what's kind of driving that? Couple reasons. One, when folks see the growth of that category, like any strong asset manager would look at that growth and see that as an opportunity for uh, themselves and their clients to get access to to what they do. Also, you start to find that as uh, folks have have taken the benefits that BDCs offered and allocated it to their investment portfolios, that's clearly been a major driver. And then a number of large state pensions, sovereign wealth funds, a number of folks have found that the BDC through several uh, tax advantages, et cetera, are a great place to invest, provided it's done with the right manager. All of that really comes about, right, this institutionalization, right, from moving from the Wild West, right, to a much more, we'll call it a proper and structured industry, right? Because early on when it's only a few players, you might have levels of um, – misalignment between the manager and the investor. Clearly today, as more capital flows in, very sophisticated capital and very sophisticated managers, you start to find that what happened in the past doesn't really work for the present. And that's great for investors and they continue to invest more and yep. more capital. Okay. So the asset class has matured to, to a degree that it's becoming more institutional. You're seeing many more institutional players yeah. out with allocations to, to BDCs. Yeah. How to fees play a role in all of this? You know, they they represent they represent alignment. And so let's maybe one high level is in finance, people are are merely uh, uh, branded houses, right? The capital isn't that differentiated. Many people have lots of money to invest. Your fee structure and how you design it says a lot about your brand and how you view investor alignment. So early on, there were fee structures that, in my opinion, were extremely high, were overcharging per unit of return that they were delivering, and more importantly, were heavily misaligned to a point where if somebody lost a dollar of investor's capital, they never had to be penalized for it, right? They effectively would be able to collect incentive fees. And so, you know, to, to us, fee structures now are markedly different. Some of them are still laggards, but we find that there's been a lot of innovation and change on that end. 
And that's lifted the space up overall as well. That's really interesting. And I know that you have personally been involved in, in, in that a lot. And in fact, I, I'll probably embarrass you here, but I, I know that you and the team have gotten some uh, positive recent press on this. I'm going to read, read this headline uh, from uh, Institutional Investor Magazine. Uh, uh, when John Bacht joined Bearings, he promised to make BDCs investor friendly. So far, so good. <laughs> That's pretty good press, John, I have to say. Um, you know, the, the article talks a lot about how when in your time as a sell-side analyst at Wells Fargo, how you really pushed for transparency, how you pushed for lower fees, which yeah. we were just talking about, and just kind of better practices overall, yeah. and how now you're in the seat to actually be able to implement some of this change. It's been a total blast. What you find uh, fascinating is that um, for years I was very, very vocal on these points because they're they're good business sense. They're good practice, but but simply good ideas uh, uh, can't be met unless there's large institutions that also share those same ideas, mm. right? And so, um, prior to my career, in terms of uh, coming here, you find that there's a high degree of shared belief uh, in how Bearings chose to look at the world mm -hmm. and how uh, in in my prior life how I did, and so that's just a wonderful combination uh, because, uh, like I said, great ideas don't exist without institutions that also share them and will preach them out. So it's a it's a giant team effort, and uh, the the credit here uh, comes from everybody rowing in the same direction. Yep, yep, that's great. Well, it's great to see uh, that the press has picked up on on some of the. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, I was. Uh, I, we we appreciate that. And we also find that you know there's still more work to be done, sure. and you're starting to see every iteration as folks kind of turn over a new page in terms of trying to do what's right for shareholders with a high degree of alignment. You find that we just lift the uh, industry just one level higher. Yeah, makes sense. Um, okay, now I, I want to make sure we're not painting an overly rosy picture here no. of, uh, of BDCs, right. right? That's right. Um, so you know, there's a lot of great stuff going on, and I think the, this whole concept of the asset class becoming more institutional, yeah. um, I, I think, really resonates with me. Um, but listen, there's a lot of risks out there yeah. still. Um, you know, with this asset class, with other asset classes. You know, I think about BDCs. I think about things like credit quality yep. as a concern. I think about um, excess leverage. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think about liquidity, right? Oh, those yeah. are probably top three concerns. So why don't we take those one by one and be interested in sure. you know, how you assess those today? Here's the, here's the fun part is you also find that when you're looking at alignment and you're misaligned, you may be willing, you know, if you're charging a higher cost or you're not penalized for losses, you may be incentivized to push the limit on credit quality mm. to run fund mm -hmm. leverage in excess or limit liquidity okay. for whatever reason. So those may be more they all, symptomatic or downstream of what you're- They're all risks, yep. right? And so what we, we'd outline today, credit quality itself, you can find that as more capital comes into the space, making loans can become much more competitive. So you have some um, you have some focus to where you need to be very disciplined and ensure you have the right structure to make the right loan at the right price, at the right time, in the right industry. Um, we operate very diversified portfolios just for that matter, right? Then you, of course, talk about leverage. Folks that choose to push the leverage profile in the BDC space can end up really harming folks because uh, at some point, maybe a bank might choose to pull the credit line mm -hmm. or uh, in any way, shape, or form that the type of financing that you're using is much more short-term while the assets themselves might be longer-term. One way to mitigate that, one thing we focus heavily on, is using 
unsecured or investment grade debt as a part of our lending or capital stack. Okay. So you start to find there's more stability, right? But that is clearly a risk with anyone that's choosing to lend in this environment is if they take leverage too high, mm-hmm. you might find that you are cruising for a bruising, right? <laughs> and then when it comes to, to, to liquidity, there's uh, th- there are some folks, and one thing we choose to focus in on you don't want to offer pseudo liquidity. And so a lot of this comes with some private structures and perpetuals. And okay. I know we can okay. always talk about that. But when folks are redeeming, if what they're using is liquid BSL collateral. Okay. So, hey, guys, I'm going to make redemptions on my fund, but I've got this BSL bucket, and that's where I'm going to pull. I'm going to sell BSLs yep. and redeem. BSLs right? being broadly syndicated loans. Broadly syndicated yep. loans. Thanks for that. What you find is, is that while that feels like you're reserving liquidity, Mm -hmm. right, to make a redemption. Well, get this. So, Greg, when everything's trading off, do BSLs stay at par? They don't They do not, right? And so what you're doing is you're saying that you're reserving a level of liquidity in your book Mm -hmm. when we all know that when stuff really hits the fan, those really aren't your great sources of liquidity. Why? Because they're all trading at material write-downs or losses. So the risks are there. Those are some points that we've seen, and we try to obviously mitigate them. Uh, but clearly, anytime you're receiving a, a high return in an environment that's very low rate, mm-hmm. you got to recognize that there are risks. And the important is, is, is your manager adept at managing them? So, John, we've talked a bit about liquidity here, and yeah. you kind of alluded earlier to some of the different structures that exist. And yeah. I know you know you and I have talked a little bit about this before, but um, but but let's just remind our listeners, you know, it can be a little bit confusing to be honest when you you know it's not just one type of structure as a BDC, right? There's multiple structures. So, a couple, yeah. Talk us through the different structures of BDCs that exist, and maybe even what some of the pros and cons are of each of them. Sure, and I can give you that industry perspective because. Look, we, we operate three. We operate all three. Uh, but here's what it, it really boils down to, okay? Uh, it's what investors want from a liquidity and from a volatility perspective. And now let me give you just an industry-level view of those structures. You have, number one, a public BDC, right? So in this case, you have investors that get liquidity, right, all the time. It's through a publicly traded stock. You could buy the uh, stock today, sell it five seconds later, right? But the underlying volatility of that public stock could be higher. Somebody says something about Dogecoin or Chinese (laughs) real estate. or The equity uh, markets move up and down. And so too, that investment can move up and down because the stock price sometimes is not reflective of the underlying fund's net asset value. It can go up or down. People see that in closed-in funds all the time, right? So so then w- what happens for someone that maybe looks for a little bit less volatility? Well, that's when you have the private BDC okay. model. Here's what that structure is. Think of it like a drawdown fund, similar to a private equity fund, and there's no liquidity or ability to get out of your position until an exit event, right? And what does that exit event look like? Well, in, in BDC land, a private BDC, will often merge with a public BDC, sometimes run by the same affiliated asset manager. Okay. Okay. Okay? Well, in that case, you have a lower degree of liquidity, right? You can't sell inside of three years until that merger event occurs. But you have a lower level of volatility. 
It's not a publicly traded stock. Your fund's value is really what the value of the assets are. It's not impacted by markets moving up or down, mm -hmm. right, uh, uh, technically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then finally, you have a merger of both, right? This is called a perpetual right? This is not done, think of it very similar to a, an interval fund or a, a mutual fund. What that means is an investor can invest and then also redeem at net asset value given whether or not the fund is redeeming its shares. That has a lower degree of volatility because it's like a mutual fund. It's not publicly traded stocks, right? It's, it's not a publicly traded stock. It's just a think of like a bond fund. However, the liquidity, while it's better than what you would have gotten in the private BDC model, it's still not as great as what it would be in a immediately liquid public stock. So, for example, investors uh, may be able to redeem up to 5% of mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the BDC be willing to buy up to 5% of its net asset value okay. per quarter. So it really just gets to liquidity and volatility. The way uh, we always like to think about things, our investment strategies across BDCs are all the same. Mm. It's the same loans. Mm -hmm. It really just depends on what an investor wants. Do they want high degrees of liquidity or high degrees of volatility? And they can pick on what's right for them and their investors. Got it. Okay. So multiple ways to access the asset class, yeah. pros and cons to each, but it yeah. sounds like a lot of it comes down to, you know, what are your liquidity constraints um, and, and what's your sort of, um, you know, ability to handle volatility? Correct. And some folks really love, you know, recognize that if there's one thing investors really have overvalued, it's liquidity, right? So as much as it feels nice to have the ability to sell your shares, you might find that that forces you into asset classes with very limited return mm -hmm, or high mm -hmm. degrees of volatility. So you tend to find that people overemphasize it to the point where it may um, may not be needed. Thank you for that explanation. I think that's really helpful. How exciting is that, right? Uh, really, it, clearly, it that's that's just exciting topic. Like, hopefully, somebody's listening to this while also preparing to go to bed. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about something exciting though, because there there is uh, a lot of excitement in the M and A space oh. uh, around BDCs, right? Yeah. So there's been a tremendous amount of uh, activity, and I, you know, I feel like I'm sitting across from you know someone who is probably as much of an expert on what's going on in this space as anyone else on the planet right now. I don't want to pump up that ego too much no. here, but uh, but I think you're you're right in the mix of it. So so tell us like what is driving the the deal flow in this space that we've seen, and then maybe you know again just thinking about it from an investor standpoint, uh, you know how might that ultimately like, impact them? So so Bearings BDC. Uh, just just publicly uh, statement of fact, purchased two publicly traded BDCs and, and merged with them or are in process of merging uh, since you and I last met, yeah. right? So uh, one was a transaction with MVC Capital, and then another was a recently announced transaction with uh, Sierra uh, Income. The M&A in the space really gets to the fundamental question of, does capital rest in certain managers better than in others. You start to find that this is a concept that continues to be played out. Um, what we've, we're finding is as the space continues to institutionalize, certain situations where there might have been a problem with the underlying manager, poor performance, take your pick, uh, boards uh, tend to look for 
uh, strategic alternatives. And so they may end up coming to uh, other BDCs or well-run platforms uh, looking for solutions, right? I'll start by saying M&A is probably going to increase in the space because as any space gets more and more institutionalized, people recognize there will be um, winners and then there will be losers. We tend to think that the benefit of getting bigger allows you to A, access different pools of capital to finance yourself so you become more stable. You can further diversify your portfolio because you have more loans. And then you also have the opportunity when you have a more stable and larger scale base to think beyond just what the next loan is and recognize that there are certain um, niche strategies or investments that might end up becoming very powerful return contributors in the future. Uh, but in order to do that, you would need to make sure that you had a, a level of scale at, of, of dollar size in order to acquit those opportunities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's all a uh, mix to where you find that in in this environment, M&A will occur because stronger hands can manage uh, uh, BDCs better. And you're finding boards are choosing to, you know, if they feel that they're not being uh, uh, managed appropriately, choosing to find partners that will manage that capital yeah, properly. Yeah. And we've thankfully been one of those. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Well, it's been exciting to watch and uh, it's been they're impressive. They're a blast to work on. It's they're been impressive to, to see some of this uh, get actually done in a work from home environment. That's been the, the most impressive <laughs> that, part to me. That's, you know, I, I, I we've, we've seen it, you know, how many you know, dogs have we seen on Zoom and kids, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, that was an opportunity in the markets that were, you know, impacted by COVID. It created one of those moments where if you were a manager that was disciplined, that was focused, we had no non-accruals mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. book during COVID, um, it creates opportunities. Yeah. And that's exactly what we did. So did we anticipate buying uh, um, and uh, agreeing to merge with two uh, BDCs? My response would be no. Mm -hmm. uh, but are we uh, smart enough to realize that when we see attractive investments laying around that we're going to make them? Yeah, we're going to. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Well, um, why don't we finish up on where we go next? Um, and, and not just bearings, of course, but but let's talk about this market overall because you know we've 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 covered a bit of ground here with the BDC space overall here. You know why it makes sense in portfolios, how people are using it as part of uh, portfolio allocations. We talked about how the asset class has grown up to some degree, yeah. and has become more institutional. Certainly, since you and I were on the equity side, absolutely, right? yeah. absolutely. Um, but where do we go from here? I mean, you've probably got as good of a lens as anyone <laughs> else in terms of uh, where we go. Um, the major trends I would look for would be uh, number one: increased institutionalization. That theme that we're talking about more and more capital, and albeit sophisticated educated capital will come into this space and end up growing the all-in AUM base for BDCs materially. All three structures, public, private, perpetual. Uh, I expect that. That's one major theme, right? Number two, I expect to see more and more progress in terms of alignment as it relates to how the managers go to solve their client problems or solve their clients' needs. More and more of that will be met with what can we do for you, the shareholder, in a manner that is reflective of the fact that there's a high degree of institutional trust as opposed to a certain manager? You know, what can we just simply get away with? Right? There's a fundamental shift there. And then finally, as this space scales, you'll start to see not only significant equity growth, but you'll start to see significant 
debt growth. So large scaled relevant business development companies all have access to the investment grade markets and you're going to see them as major issuers of that unsecured investment grade paper, you know, we're rated investment grade, but you start to find that is a very, very unique way uh, to one, create more resiliency in your model and also lead to earnings expansion because the cost at which we're issuing debt today is much cheaper than clearly where we're lending to our obligors, right? And so our clients collect that net spread. So it's, it's, it's bright days, right? Credit, credit performance is strong. And more importantly, as managers keep stepping and taking the space one step higher in terms of alignment, uh, I'm as excited as I was when I started this career in BDCs uh, many years ago. That's awesome. Well, you've come uh, full circle in some ways, and uh, I guess we've come full circle <laughs> now that we you and uh, me. now that we are here in person again. So yeah. let's not wait another year and a half to uh, to get together and, and have a conversation. I know well, we, but, we, uh, we're always around, and you know it's a pleasure to be on the show. Awesome, thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to episode number five of season five of Streaming Income. Remember, if you want to be the first to hear about our latest episodes on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, be sure to follow Streaming Income on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.